Father, as we prepare now to hear from your word and reflect on this commandment, I pray that you would be with all of us, convicting us of our sin and calling us to follow you more faithfully. pray that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim your word, that you would help what I say and the meditations of our hearts be true and pleasing to you. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, the pastor and now president of Wheaton College, Philip Riken, who I know Connie back there is smiling as I say, but um, he wrote a book on the Ten Commandments, which has been useful to me throughout this series, especially on this one. But in discussing the Eighth Commandment, he starts by describing this painting that I'm going to put on the screen, and it's a cover of the Saturday Evening Post. And the first time you look at it, you just see this woman and this butcher who appear to be looking at a scale back in like the 50s or something, discussing, you know, their business arrangement. And then as you look a little closer, you notice that both the woman and the butcher have their fingers on the scale, the woman pushing up to try to lighten the weight of the chicken, and the butcher, butcher pushing downward. And what's so striking about that painting is that if you'd asked those people, I doubt that either of them in that moment would say, what I am doing is being a thief. Indeed, probably they would describe themselves virtuously. The woman would say she is being thrifty, just making sure that she gets a good deal for her family. And the butcher would say he's being shrewd, just trying to get ahead a little bit in the world of business. But, of course, the fact is that both of them have their fingers on the scale and are trying to rob the other. And the irony, of course, of the painting is that because both of them are trying to wrong the other person, it sort of ends up somewhere close to even. But that is kind of the reality of this Eighth Commandment. Almost all of us break it, like those two characters, but rarely do I think we stop and reflect on what we are doing. But that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. With that picture in our heads, here's what we're going to do this morning. It's kind of simple. First, we're just going to consider this commandment and reflect on the fact that while maybe most of us don't think of ourselves as thieves, that most of us are, all of us, honestly, are in fact guilty of breaking it. And then we're going to discuss a truth about God that helps us to address the sins that this commandment reveals. First, we are all a bunch of thieves. And to see that, let's start just working and rolling out the commandment. So here it is. Again, it's a simple one. You shall not steal. And we read that. And obviously, the question we need to ask is, what does it mean when it says steal? Now, first of all, what we all think about is things that we would call criminal theft. And the commandment does apply to those things. So, robbery, which is you know, taking someone from someone else by force, or burglary, breaking into somebody's house and stealing their stuff, picking pockets, the deceptive thievery of a con artist, extortion and embezzlement and all the stuff that we would never do but love to watch movies about other people doing. It would include all of those things within the purview of that commandment. Um, but maybe more than most of these commandments, that can actually get us in trouble because when we hear steal, what we immediately start thinking about is things that are illegal. That's where our brains immediately go, and that is not what the commandment necessarily only has in view. But before we move on from that, we should probably say that even by that legal definition of theft, plenty of us are at times guilty of stealing. Average Americans steal often. If you have ever shoplifted something from a store, 
or taken something from a hotel room hoping that nobody noticed and you didn't have to pay for it, right? That is theft. And that's not inconsequential theft. I used to, before, um, I, I was a manager in, in retail at Target back in the day, and um, dealing with theft was a continual thing. In fact, just from there, I know, they, they say $50 billion a year gets stolen from stores, mostly by shoplifting. And if, to put that number in perspective, the entire revenue of Sam's Club in a year is $59 billion. So if you just imagined like all the Sam's Clubs in the country being completely empty because people had stolen literally everything in them, that's the amount of stuff that that kind of petty theft is in our world. So that happens, and average Americans are guilty of it. And of course, there is theft by the wealthy, too. White-collar crime is an obvious example, and other, other crimes of embezzlement and things. And also, there's things like tax avoidance, right? Where people employ an army of lawyers and do their best to kind of live in that gray, fuzzy area where they get away with paying money. And again, that's a lot of money. That's $100 billion a year just the people who make more than a million dollars a year don't pay in taxes in the U.S. Um, and we hear that, and we might say, well, okay, but that's starting to get a little fuzzy legally, right? Is that technically illegal? And again, though, that's where we have to recognize that this isn't primarily concerned with sort of our country's laws. The biblical view of stealing includes a broad range of sins, because biblically, stealing is what it would use to refer to any time that we take something for ourselves that by rights belongs to somebody else. Anytime we would try to take something for ourselves that by rights belongs to somebody else. God gives things to people and it is theft when we take those people or those things and we don't have a right to. So there's a lot of other theft that is technically legal. Let me just try to walk through some examples. For example, employees steal from their employers. And I don't just mean paper clips from the office. One of the biggest examples is stolen time. We get paid to work, right, to, to do a set of tasks. And we are human, right? We're not machines. And of course, it's fine to take breaks and rest appropriately. But plenty of us go well beyond what is appropriate. And we surf the internet for hours and, you know, play solitaire and just sit around gossiping with our coworkers in a way that is getting paid while not doing the work that we're getting paid to do, and that is theft. Indeed, scripture often views laziness, which is how it would describe kind of slacking off in work, as a sort of theft. For example, in Proverbs 18, it says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys, which is to say that simply not working in some sense is the same thing as actively seeking to destroy and tear down the place that we work. And of course, employers can steal as well, right, on the other side of that equation. They can demand far too many hours, many of which are unpaid. They can force employees to shoulder inhuman workloads that cause them to neglect duties to family and God. Indeed, scripture, and this is a challenging one as I spent some time sitting with these texts, it does not share the modern idea that you can pay people the absolute minimum you can get away with and have that be just. Scripture regularly speaks of the idea of a just wage that is owed to workers for the work that they do for us. Um, so, for example, the prophet Malachi treats that as a grave sin when he says, I will draw near to you for judgment. This is God speaking. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. 
or the Apostle James, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So employees and employers, citizens can steal from their government. That can happen in obvious ways like disability and social security claims, fraud and things like that that you hear about on the news. It can also happen in things as simple as not paying all of our taxes. We're called by scripture to pay taxes to the government. For example, from Romans 13, for because of this you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, tending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So we cheat on our taxes. They're robbing the state. And again, that is not a small problem. In fact, the tax gap, which is just the difference between legally what people are required to pay and what they actually pay, right? Not, that's with all the loopholes in tax and all the avoiding taxes and offshore accounts and tax, but the tax gap in the U.S. is $450 billion a year and people not paying taxes that they're owed, which means just if people just paid the taxes the government currently levies, the national deficit would be reduced by two-thirds. <laughs> Speaking of that, governments can also steal from their citizens, right? That can happen in terms of broken promises and misallocated funds. It can happen in the form of extreme deficit spending, where we essentially rob our children to pay for programs or tax breaks for us today. Indeed, you can almost divide the government into different kinds of stealing based on party, I feel like, where on one side are those who are rebuked by this commandment when they view people's wealth as entirely free for the taking just because they're wealthy. And on the other side, they are rebuked when they ignore the thefts that society commits and has committed against the poor and minorities. And the list can keep going of stealing. There's nothing wrong with advertising or marketing, but there can be a sort of deceptiveness that slips in there. We can, the Bible talks about the idea of unequal weights and measures, and the modern equivalence of that is like when you open that big box and find out 90% of it is air, right? When a salesperson uses deceptive claims to sell their product, robbery can come in the form of interest rates. There's actually a whole bunch of Bible verses against usury, which is the old-fashioned term that means the charging of unjust interest rates. Israelites are forbidden from that against each other, and the practice is viewed as sin. For example, in the prophet Ezekiel, he gives this description of the wicked man, and it goes on and on and lists all these things, and the ultimate like crux of his wickedness, after all of these other sins, is that he lends at interest and takes a profit. And about such a person, the prophet goes on to say, will such a man live? He will not because he has not done all these detestable things, he is to be put to death, and his blood will be on his own head. Now, to be clear, that does not mean that the Bible says nobody could ever charge interest on loans. That's another whole discussion. But beyond interest that covers risk and a sort of just very basic, reasonable amount of income for the person lending, Scripture would condemn that practice. Certainly, the, the payday lenders and other high-interest kinds of loans our world would be viewed by scripture as usury and hence theft. And theft doesn't have to involve physical goods at all. For instance, taking people's intellectual property, as we would put it today, is a part of theft. 
Internet piracy, for example, is theft. While some people who do it would protest that, you know, I mean, I wasn't going to buy it anyway, the response to that is that's fine, but then you shouldn't enjoy the fruits of that person's labor. Plagiarism is breaking this commandment. Taking someone's words and representing them as your own, that is stealing from that person. And that's true whether it's like in a book that you publish or a speech you give in public, or whether that's just the way we in private conversations often take clever lines or stories that people have told us and represent them as if we made them up so that we can get the praise. And really that's a small example of the broader problem of stealing credit. Scripture views honor and respect as things that are owed, as you might have heard in our reading from Romans 13. And when we pretend like an idea or a project is ours and steal the honor and respect that should go to somebody else, that's a form of theft. We can just pause there and say that's already a list that leaves most of us, including me, feeling convicted of breaking this commandment. And that's the thing is, that's, that's only in kind of the narrower sense, because the more we appreciate the breadth of the commandment, the more we appreciate that it convicts us in deeper ways, too. One of the core claims of Christian theology is that because God made everything, ultimately everything belongs to God. That is the logic, for example, of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. So the reasoning there is to say everything is owned by God. It's rightfully his possession. And that's true because God made everything. Because whenever we interact with the world, whenever we use our bodies in the world, we're dealing with things that are owned ultimately by their creator. Which means that we rob God, in a sense, whenever we use created things for sin. That we are... Taking, um, taking bodies God gave us and minds that God gave us and things in the world that God gave us and using them to do things that um, are turning away from God. We're stealing things from him and using them for our own ends. We divide the world, right, into what is mine and what is other people's, and we act as if, well, as long as I can count it in the what is mine bucket, I'm good to go. But if everything is God's, then that has to change our perspective. Particularly, Scripture views us as robbing God when we fail to be appropriately generous. We are called to give of our income to help the poor and the needy, to help brothers and sisters, to support the public worship of God and the proclamation of the gospel. And here from the prophet Malachi is how the Lord speaks about our failure to be generous. He says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. So God owns everything, and while he entrusts each of us with part of it, we are to recognize that we should be generous with it, because it's gifted to begin with. In particular, this commandment reminds us of God's concern for the poor and our calling to help them. All of the earth is God's, and God intends for that earth to support all of humanity. Now, that does not mean that every person has to have an equal amount of stuff in the world, but it does mean that God has created a world in which there is more than enough for everyone to be cared for in a basic way and to have those basic needs met. And when structures in society or the actions of individuals deprive people of those basic things that they need for life, 
that is taking something that God provided for them to be supported for ourselves. We as Christians are called to seek to ensure that all people have what God intends for them to have. That's how the Bible would view justice. Or one more, we rob God by squandering our gifts. Scripture teaches us that our talents and abilities are from God. That's true of our natural talents. It is true of what the Bible calls our spiritual gifts. Holy Spirit-empowered talents. We're given those things to serve the world and to serve each other. And when we, in our fear or our laziness, refuse to use and develop those gifts, we're taking tools that God gave to us and hiding them away to rust in a barn rather than using them to serve the world like we're supposed to. And when we reflect on that, we realize that we are all guilty of violating this commandment in profound ways. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Exodus, and then writing elsewhere as well, and this was his conclusion after he kind of lays out all the ways we do it. And it's a very Martin Luther quote, but it's, if we look at all mankind and all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable of great thieves. It is the smallest part of the thieves that are hung. If we were able to hang them all, where should we get enough rope? We must make all our belts and straps into halters. It is a very vivid way of saying all of us, we must recognize, are guilty as thieves in God's world. That is, of course, why we need the good news of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And remember, that's something over and over we've been saying in these sermons. Part of the point of these commandments is to bring us to that place of conviction so that we recognize that our hope is founded and rests in Jesus, right? Jesus, who goes and hangs between two thieves, innocent, convicted, you know, among them unjustly for us on that hill so that he might pay for the salvation of thieves like us. We need to recognize that foundation of grace that we stand on when we feel convicted by this commandment. And then we also are called to seek obedience as we stand planted on that grace, we are called to walk forward towards Christ. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. But not just sort of like we should obey. I want to say, how do we do this? Maybe why don't we always do these things that this commandment would call us to? Why are we so prone to robbing God and others of things that are rightfully theirs? And I want to suggest that like a lot of our struggles with sin, our problem in that regard is ultimately theological. Now that might sound strange because we hear the word theological and we think like abstract academic books for some of us or something. But theology just means what we believe about God. Many of our struggles stem from the fact that we believe wrong and untrue things about God. And while we don't realize it, that's part of what actually drives us towards sin. And for that to make sense, we're going to step back from discussing theft for a minute, and first we're going to discuss the theological idea of providence, the doctrine of providence. Providence is the label we give to the idea that God is in control of the world and everything that happens in it. Here is one way to define it, from the Westminster Confession, which is our theological statement for our church, and this is dense, so I'm going to read it and then we will break it down, all right? Don't freak out. <laughs> but it says, God who created everything, also upholds everything, 
He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing from the greatest to the least by his completely wise and holy providence. He does so in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the voluntary, unchangeable purpose of his own will, all to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and truth. Got all that? All right. First, what that says is that God is ultimately in control of the world. Present tense. He upholds, directs, regulates, and governs creation. Which is to say, when things happen in the world, they're not just fate or luck or accidents. It's not that God sort of like, you know, wound up the universe like a toy, you know, that the, your kids have and set it on the ground. And it's just like, well, let's see what happens and lets it go. He is actively involved in controlling and ruling over the world today. And then second, that definition stresses that God's control over the world is complete. That there are not things that are outside of his control. Everything happens as a result of his infallible foreknowledge, meaning that he perfectly knows everything that has been or will be or could be, and the voluntary, unchangeable purpose of his will, meaning that he freely, unchangeably chooses and declares what will happen. Now I know many of us have questions when we hear that kind of claim about God being in control of everything. And if you wanted to, and went and read in the confession, you would see that the next couple sections are trying to work out a lot of those questions, right? And it would be saying things like, God is not the author of evil, and God does not overrule human wills. Humans still make real choices and have agency. But he is in control of everything in an absolute sense. Just consider a few of many scriptures that declare that fact. Here's one from Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Or this from the book of Acts. He says, And God is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. Or this from the prophet Daniel. God's domain is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of the heaven and the peoples of the earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So God is in control of everything. And then back to that, um, that summary from the confession. The last part, though, would stress that God's control expresses his character. That everything that God works in his control is ultimately to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Meaning that God is working in a way that reflects his goodness and his mercy and his power and wisdom and justice as he works out his control in the world. All right. So that's the idea of the doctrine of providence. And you might still be thinking, all right, how exactly does that meet us in the Eighth Commandment? Take that idea, put it off, right, mentally to the side. We're going to make a second observation, and then we're going to bring the two of them together. All right? The second observation um, is that almost all of us, when we rob God or rob others, are doing it ultimately because we have wrong ideas about ourselves or the world. 
we have wrong ideas about ourselves or the world. And to see that, just imagine a thief, right? And I, like, imagine like a criminal, legal sense of the word thief and ask, why does that person steal? Why do they do it? Usually, I think, it boils down to one of two things. One is pride. They think that they deserve more than is necessary. They, um, they are given a certain station in life and a certain amount of stuff in life, and they think, well, I deserve more, and so they go and they steal. That would be one of the reasons. And the other, maybe the more common one, is fear. They are fearful that they won't have enough. Often, if you hear people talk about becoming criminals, it arises out of a conviction that the world is unfair and they're never going to be able to make it if they kind of pursue honest work and they come out of a place where they feel like, you know, they're, they're afraid and don't trust that they're going to be able to do it some other way. So pride or fear or some combination of those two is often the thing that drives that thief. That is equally true for us in the many legal ways that we can be thieves. Why do employees cheat their company out of their work by, by not doing it? Well, because in their pride, they feel like they deserve that money, right? They deserve that income even without putting the work in. Why do companies rip off and exploit their workers? Often it's because they're fearful that if they paid them a just wage and took good care of them, they wouldn't be able to succeed in the marketplace. Why do we steal credit from people who otherwise deserve it? Often it's because in our pride, we convince ourselves that really we're the ones who deserve the credit. They just happen to like come up with the idea and do all the work. In our fear, oftentimes we don't use the gifts that God gives us. And we are not generous because we're scared that if we pour ourselves out in the ways that he calls us to, there won't be anything left for us. So that's the second idea, that our sins in, this, in terms of this commandment come from those wrong ideas of pride and fear about ourselves and our relationship to the world. All right. Now, take those two ideas and put them together. What you realize, if the doctrine of providence is true, is that that pride and fear we have in relation to the world is really a set of wrong beliefs about God. Because God is in control of the world and working in the world according to his character, when we wrongly place ourselves too highly in the world or wrongly believe fearfully things about the world, what we're really doing is believing wrong stuff about God. Here's what I mean. Really, there's three ways we can believe wrong stuff about God. One is that we can just deny the doctrine entirely or fail to believe in the doctrine of providence at all. If we don't understand that God is in the throne, that can create both pride and fear. It creates pride because if God is not in control of things, then I better be the biggest kid on the playground. I better look out for number one, right? I mean, that it, it is a dog-eat-dog -dog survival of the fittest world um, in that world without God being in control of things. And so, of course, I need to kind of puff myself up and be big and look out for myself. And then fear, because that world is terrifying. Seriously, there is, there is no scarier word you could hear for the, from the Lord than oops, right? If God is not in control of things, then we live in a world where our basic assumptions, like that good will win out in the end, or that, you know, we ought to not be bad, do bad things, those assumptions might be wrong. 
just recognizing that God is involved and in control of the world, it actually already, I think, starts to help us when we think about the ways that our hearts break this commandment. Just reflecting on the doctrine of providence makes us more mindful of the fact that the world is God's. The difference between living in a world that is owned by us and living in a world that is borrowed, right? Like, I own some books, a lot of books, um, but not too many books, Elizabeth. <laughs> um, whole world is like a borrowed book, um, which is to say that we are called to recognize that we don't own it, but that because God is in control of it, every piece of it is borrowed from him, and borrowed not just in a once back in the day we got it from him sense, but like because he's here actively in the world, it's like we've got this book that's borrowed from him, and we're, he's sitting next to us while we're reading it, right? And that should affect the way that we treat it. So denying providence as a whole is part of how we can be led astray into sin. But then there's two specific ways we can kind of misunderstand it. One is to deny God's wisdom in relation to providence. To deny that God knows what he is doing. God has given each of us a place in his world and in his plans. We have certain talents and certain levels of blessing certain space that we occupy today. Now, within the place that God has given us, we ought to develop our gifts, we ought to work hard, we ought to have appropriate ambitions and talents and dream the dreams that he's given us. By recognizing he's given us a place, that doesn't mean that we can't work hard and try to change things, but we as humans often go far beyond what is appropriate and have a discontentment at the limitations that God has given us. We, um, we think that we should be different than we are, or better than we are, or have more stuff than we have. And in doing that, often what we end up doing is denying God's wisdom. He tells us his plans and our place in them, and we say, well, that's not enough. And in our pride, we then sin. So recognizing that God is wiser than us is one of the specific ways we need to challenge that sin. And then also we can deny God's goodness. That is the root of much of our fear. We might acknowledge that God is in control and is bigger than us and knows more than us, but we still have to ask, yes, but is he good? Is what he's working out in his providence truly good? And we need to be careful here to define goodness correctly because so many of us, even when we, though we know better, we hear that word and we think, oh, that means that God's going to like make life easy for us and pleasant and you know, give us all the stuff that we want. And that is not what God's goodness means. Just self-evidently, if you live in the world, God does not work his providence such that we always get the things that are easy or that we want. However, God's goodness in scripture does mean two things. 
One is that it means that while there will be hard things and stuff that we don't like in life, that God will sustain us through them. He provides us with the means and the strength to shoulder the burden that his providence ordains. And two, it means that while there is much that is evil and hard within that providence of God, if we belong to him, he is working out what is ultimately good for us. Not easy or pleasant in the moment, but what is truly best, that through the hardships, just as much or maybe more than through the easy and pleasant times in life, God in his goodness is growing us to be more like Jesus and growing us to be human beings that better bear his image and deepening us. And that's, that's the grounds for the famous promise Paul makes about God's goodness in his letter to the Romans, where he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Here's the point of all that discussion. What we need to do when we recognize those ways that we rob God in our hearts is recognize the reality that God is in control of the world, and that he is wiser than we are, and that he is better than we are, and that as we trust in those realities, the temptations that we have to steal from him and steal from others, whether in physical, tangible ways or more intangible ways, start to lose its power. And that's a truth that I think Jesus actually understood and taught really well. The other scripture reading that we would have heard this morning from the Sermon on the Mount um, is where Jesus, um, he first warns against the love of money just before it, and then he calls his people to recognize a set of truths about God in this famous speech. And so as we close, I just want us to hear this speech and reflect on it in terms of what we've just said. First, Jesus proclaims the reality of God's care and providence. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life. So Jesus starts with this general command, do not worry. Do not worry. Which means both do not be fearful, do not, you know, be scared about the things that are to come in the world, but also do not in your pride think that you can solve everything. Worry touches on both of those things. Jesus gives this example of the birds of the air, and he says, recognize how even though they don't have all the planning and all the anxiety and all the agricultural skills that you have, they're fed by the Lord. And so he says from that, there's two things we need to remember, that in God's eyes we are more valuable than the birds, and that in our worry we cannot add a single hour to our lives, which is again to speak to our fear and our pride. First, remember that God is good, loves us and values us far more than these birds of the field that he already provides for. And second, that we're not as great as we believe, that even all of our planning and plotting can't add a single hour to our lives. Jesus then develops those themes, first of God's goodness. He says, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. 
They do not labor or spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus is emphasizing is God's goodness and that what he provides is not even just the bare necessities, but it's extravagant, right? I mean, it's springtime and the fields are not just full of moss, right? They're they're full of flowers and they're soon going to be blooming and all of these colors and all of this splendor. And Jesus says in that we're to recognize that God is good and richly and abundantly blesses us. And then he says, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So turn from your pride, turn from using all your energy to get your own, because God knows what you need, and he will take care of you. Our job is to seek God's glory and walk in his ways, he will supply what we need. That is the truth that sets us free from our struggles with that. With greed and selfishness and all of the ways that these that commandment works itself out in our lives. That God provides for us. And he does it perfectly and he does it extravagantly. And the more we really believe and apply that truth to our hearts, the more we are freed God and Father, I just pray, as we have heard these truths, that you would build us up in them and call us to seek obedience to, um, yeah, to this, but to seek it in a context of knowing that you are powerful and kind, and that so we do not need to fret over ourselves, but can find peace in what you provide. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who covers our sin and calls us into life. Amen.